0: Hello and welcome to the political history of the United States. Episode 4.21 Franklin in the Cockpit The events in Boston on the night of December 16th, 1773 cannot easily be overstated. The Boston Tea Party was a watershed moment that would set the stage for the eventual break with London. Historian Theodore Draper States in his book, A Struggle for Power, that, and I'm quoting here, in effect, Boston was lost to the British Empire in December 1773. John Adams would write the next morning that the Tea Party marked an epoch in history. Everybody understood that what had occurred was a big deal. Many understood that it marked a moment that would permanently change the game. The colonists had, over the course of the previous night, advanced the imperial crisis to new, uncharted waters. The destruction of the East India Company tea would not mark the beginning nor the end of anything. By the time the calendar turned to 1774, the imperial crisis was nearly a decade old. Nor was it really the end of anything. The destruction of the tea marked a single event in a single colony. Throughout the colonies, there was still the question of what to do with the tea as it came in. During our last episode, we had talked about the tea that had been left to rot in storage in Charleston, South Carolina. We discussed the unfortunate Captain Ayers, who, upon arrival in Pennsylvania, and with knowledge of the destruction of the tea in Boston, was informed about his looming date with tar and feathers should he decide to land. Captain Ayers quickly made a U-turn and left. Even in Massachusetts itself, the events of December 16th did not bring a meaningful conclusion to anything. In fact, there was another T-ship heading towards Boston that December. However, it was severely damaged off of Cape Cod prior to landing. The news of that ship, the William, running aground along Cape Cod, ironically arrived in the colony on December the 16th. Now, unlike the tea actually in Boston Harbor, that was prevented from being unloaded, the crew actually did manage to salvage a good amount of the tea and unload it onto the shore, where it was stored in Provincetown, at the very tip of the Cape. Just like that, albeit unintentionally, the despised tea had landed. By January, 54 chests of tea had been transported to Castle William. In Boston, the ship's captain was dragged before a town meeting to answer for bringing the tea into the colony. The tea remaining back in Cape Cod became fiercely fought after, as everybody debated exactly what they should do with it. Some people wanted to sell the tea legally. Some wanted to essentially sell the tea that had not been subjected to a duty, while others wanted to do nothing at all with the tea. What would follow in the months to come was a, often violent, campaign to recover the tea. All throughout Massachusetts, those who had acquired the tea found themselves the subject of interest for angry crowds, who did not want East India Company tea circulating throughout the colony. Even following the December events in Boston, there was clearly still a market for tea in the city even East India Company tea. Those who had managed to get their hands on it had little trouble finding buyers. The problem that this hits at is there is still obviously a demand for tea in the colonies. The demand was always going to make enforcing non-importation of tea a difficult, if not outright impossible, feat. It likewise illustrates that there were still plenty of colonists out there who were less opposed to dealing in East India Company tea than the Boston leadership would have liked. Of course, last time when we discussed the Tea Party itself, recall that a handful of people did attempt to actually make off with tea, generally with poor results. For the colonists, December 16th had ended nothing. The question of how to deal with future tea shipments still loomed large. However, by the morning of December 17th, new questions hung ominously in the air. How would the other colonies respond? What were the British going to do? As to the former, the Boston Sons of Liberty were pleased at the response that they got from the other colonies. Indeed, all throughout North America, the colonies turned to a strict program of non-importation, with the Tea Party acting as the example. Critically, men like Sam Adams were looking anxiously to both New York and Philadelphia. We had discussed the concern that had come out of those colonies, the fear that Boston was so addicted to tea that they were going to be unable to resist importation. Dumping some 90,000 pounds of it into Boston Harbor turned out to be just the right medicine. New York colonists applauded the destruction of the tea, and in Philadelphia, bells rang to celebrate the news. A few weeks later, when news of the tea being landed and effectively locked up in Charleston made it north, it was greeted with equally gleeful celebrations. The colonies were united in their response to the Tea Act, and thus far they had all acted in accordance with the ideas of non-importation, Nobody seemed to have any plans to let the tea land, at least not easily. It is worth noting that Charleston is especially noteworthy in their response. They were dealing with their own tea crisis at the same time, as events were coming to a head in Boston. Even with the rapid growth of committees of correspondence, information traveled slowly throughout the colonies. This meant that Charleston and Boston were unaware of the others' actions when they were making their own stands. Though they both went about it in radically different ways, Boston through outright destruction and Charleston through allowing the tea to rot in storage. Both groups effectively achieved the same ends. There was a general agreement throughout all of the colonies that the duty could not be paid. There was disagreement over how to accomplish that goal, But in the end, the goal itself was agreed upon. The debates that emerged were over whether or not the Charleston method of unloading the tea and then preventing its sale, or the Boston technique of hurling it into the ocean, was superior. Although the Boston method certainly was effective, not to mention likely being both more symbolic and personally cathartic, the more moderate colonists disliked the anarchy and disorder that came from the Boston method. Moving through the winter into the spring of 1774, much effort was spent coming to grips with what resistance should look like. Even in Massachusetts, once you got outside of Boston and away from its immediate sphere of influence, there was an uneasiness that came from the destruction of the tea. The first British official forced to react to the Tea Act was none other than Thomas Hutchinson. Prior to the events of December 16th, Hutchinson was pretty much over Massachusetts, and especially over Boston. He had been stuck in an ongoing scandal for months, and by the time of the destruction of the tea, the only person who wanted Hutchinson gone more than Samuel Adams and John Hancock was likely Hutchinson himself. Yet, that would have to wait, as once again... Hutchinson was left standing in extraordinarily turbulent waters. Neither could Hutchinson ignore what had happened or overreact. He could not risk looking the other way, which would have landed him in hot water in London. Should he call troops in to regain control and protect the East India Company T, he would risk setting off a second Boston Massacre, or maybe worse. Hutchinson called for his counsel before the end of December, and after a few failed attempts to get enough together to get a quorum, he managed to have the meeting. Hutchinson ordered that an investigation be held and that those responsible be brought to justice. Of course, Hutchinson was well aware that this was going to be nothing more than a fool's errand. By January 1774, he lacked the requisite power in the colony to actually push forward a prosecution. Even if those who had destroyed the tea Were well known. By this point, those who had the power to effectively deal with those who had destroyed the tea were decidedly on the side of the Sons of Liberty and the Committee of Correspondence. News of what had happened in Boston first made it to London during the middle part of January 1774. The flow of information actually came from a few sources that all appear to have arrived at right about the same time the news would initially reach England on January 19th. About a week later, the Polly arrived, after having been turned away from Philadelphia, with Captain Ayers on board. In the coming days and weeks, information continued to pour in, as more and more who had witnessed the events arrived in England, eager to tell their stories. The first substantial reaction in London to the destruction of the tea came on January 29th, so really just a few days after the information had arrived. The man who would catch the full fury of the British government is the guy who had been acting as the Massachusetts agent for several years now, Benjamin Franklin. Now, to fully understand what is about to happen with Franklin, we are going to need to step back for a moment and quickly catch up with everybody's favorite printer. The first thing to understand is that Franklin was completely unaware of what had happened in Boston. He was learning about events at the exact same time that the British government was. Franklin was not a Boston radical, and had nothing to do with the destruction of the tea. Likewise, sure the Polly had gone through his hometown of Philadelphia. However, Franklin had not actually been in that city, nor any of the colonies for that matter, in over 16 years. So, yeah, Franklin had nothing at all to do with the refusal or destruction of any East India Company tea. The problem for Benjamin Franklin is that we are about to have a whole bunch of lines intersect at the exact same moment. Let's turn our attention back a few weeks to episode 4.19. If you will recall... Boston had been a bit slow to react to the Tea act as they were caught up in the ongoing battle with Thomas Hutchinson over those leaked letters which had been published during the previous summer. It was from these letters that the colonists inside of Massachusetts demanded Hutchinson's recall. To facilitate this, they sent their demands to their agent, Benjamin Franklin, who was going to need to be the one to get it done. Franklin did as he was told, and agreed to bring forward the petition. However, by this point, the leadership in London was not exactly taking a pro-American stance. They were extremely dismayed by the publication of the Hutchinson letters. More than dismayed, however, they were also very curious exactly how these letters had gotten published it was obvious that somebody had to have leaked the letters. However, what was not yet known was that the source of the leak was indeed Benjamin Franklin. For months after the publication of the letters, gossip about the source moved throughout Britain. Newspapers were rife with rumor-mongering, as fingers were pointed and denials of involvement were thrown around frequently. Franklin had no problem at all with finger-pointing, so long as said fingers did not point at him. He had little interest in disrupting the rumor mills, and was more than happy not being blamed for the letters. This plan was all well and good, right up until December 1773. That December, accusations from William Watley were thrown at John Temple, William Watley was the brother of Thomas Watley, the man who Hutchinson had been writing to in the original letters. Thomas had died in 1772. However, his brother William clearly was not enjoying the controversy. John Temple was a minor official who was born in America and had a reputation for being sympathetic towards the colonists. Temple, angry over his sacred honor being besmirched, challenged Watley to a duel. Watley, of course, accepted the challenge. The two men, rather than just simply shooting at each other, decided that a little bit of swashbuckling in Hyde Park was the better way to go. Thus, on December 11th, they spent a few minutes flailing at each other with swords, until Watley decided that he was sufficiently cut up to withdraw things however do not end here watley was not thrilled with the outcome of the duel and began spreading information essentially accusing temple of fighting dirty with his sacred honor yet again besmirched temple challenged watley to another duel it goes without saying that franklin wanted to keep his involvement with the hutchinson letters a secret he was well aware of the fallout should people discover that it was him who had sent the letters. However, he could not sit back and watch Whatley and Temple slash at each other indefinitely. He certainly did not want to be responsible for the death of an innocent man. Franklin, left with little other choice, shared his involvement with the letters in an article that he had published on December 25th in the Lending Chronicle. Of course, Franklin did try to paint himself in the best light possible, but really there was only going to be so much that he could do. He makes clear that Watley and Temple had nothing to do with the letter, so that they could stop stabbing at each other. Franklin argued that the letters were never of a private nature, but rather were communications between two public officers, written about public affairs. There was nothing private in nature about them, Despite his attempts at justifying the sharing of those letters, nobody was having any of it. What Franklin had no way of knowing is that while all of this is going on in London, across the ocean, the Tea Crisis was approaching its climax. Look at the dates here. The first duel between Whatley and Temple happened on December 11th. The claims of fighting dirty came the following week on December 18th. Franklin published his admission of being the one who had sent the letters on December 25th. Of course, what happened in the middle of all of this is that on December 16th, there was the destruction of the East India Company tea. On January 11th, Franklin was ordered to appear before the Privy Council on his request to have Hutchinson recalled. Everybody, Franklin included, was well aware that nobody was planning to give in to the demands of the colonists on this matter. However, they still planned to have their little bit of theatre anyway. Franklin had always been a popular figure in London, and now his involvement with the Hutchinson letters opened the door to attack him and hopefully knock him down a few pegs. Leading the charge for the Privy Council was the Solicitor General, Alexander Wedderburn. Wedderburn was an exceptionally skilled attorney, and was well known for his skill in the courtroom. None of this was good news for Franklin. In the first few minutes of the hearing, it became abundantly clear that Wedderburn, nor anybody on the Privy Council, was there to talk about firing Governor Hutchinson. Franklin, by sending those letters, had now made himself the personification of the entire ongoing crisis. All of the anger and frustration towards the Boston Radicals that had, for nearly a decade now, been nothing but a constant headache for London, was now being directed right at Benjamin Franklin. Wedderburn requested a copy of the letters. After all, it was the entire reason why the Massachusetts colonists wanted Hutchinson gone. Franklin was stuck. Of course, he did not have the originals because those were now over in the hands of Samuel Adams, an ocean away. Franklin had to admit publicly that it was him who had sent the letters. Seeing as how the Privy Council had lawyered up for the occasion, Franklin decided that the best move would be for him to follow suit. Not that he personally cared all that much about having legal representation. However, Franklin had been ambushed. He had not expected that he was going to be walking into said ambush, led by one of the most powerful attorneys in all of Britain. What Franklin really needed, therefore, more than anything else in that moment, was time. Requesting legal representation afforded him that extra time that he needed. Franklin requested, and received, three additional weeks to prepare for what was coming the date for the new hearing was reset to January 29th. Let's now take just a moment and allow for all of these separate threads to intersect at the worst possible time for Benjamin Franklin. Even by the time of the January 11th hearing, Franklin stood as the personification of the Boston Radicals. No matter what he did at this point, by him sharing those letters he had irreversibly linked himself to the leaders of the resistance back in Boston. But, of course, events had progressed much further than anybody knew by the time that Franklin first appeared on January 11th. The tea had already been thrown into Boston Harbor. In Philadelphia, the Polly had already been told that it was time to leave and head back with their tea still intact. On the 11th, Wedderburn, the Privy Council, Franklin, nor anybody else in London, knew about any of this. Unfortunately for Ben Franklin, news of what had happened in Boston started to trickle in about a week before his scheduled appearance. The official report from Thomas Hutchinson reached England on January 27th, just two days before Franklin was set to appear. When Franklin had left on the 11th for a chance to retain counsel, he was already sitting in a place where he would be catching a whole lot of ire that had been building for years from the Privy Council. Yet as dire as it had looked on the 11th, by the time that Franklin returned on the 29th, the situation had radically changed. It was looking very bleak for Benjamin Franklin. Franklin was, technically heading to a hearing to be heard on his request to remove Andrew Oliver and Thomas Hutchinson. However, as he entered the cockpit, so named because Henry VIII enjoyed hosting cockfights there, it was abundantly clear that nobody had any intention of discussing the removal of either Oliver or Hutchinson. Normally, meetings of the Privy Council were rather dull bureaucratic affairs. They were about as far away from high drama or entertainment as one could get. On this particular day, however, the room was filled. People were expecting a show and Wedderburn had no plans to disappoint them. Among those who had come to watch were Lord North, Lord Dartmouth, and Lord Hillsborough. Thomas Gage, who was in London on a break, as well as our old friend from the French and Indian War, Jeffrey Amherst, were there as well. John Dunning had been retained by Benjamin Franklin for representation. Dunning, unfortunately, was no Wedderburn. Soft-spoken as the result of an illness, Dunning simply did not have the ability to command a room like Wedderburn did. Dunning did what he could to try and defend Franklin. When the Hutchinson letters were read aloud, Dunning tried to explain that this was a political matter and not a legal matter. However, by this point, nobody really seemed to care. In fact, Dunning's defense of Franklin, and Massachusetts as a whole, really was not the point either. Rather than a hearing where both sides could meaningfully respond, what occurred that day in the cockpit was more of an airing of the grievances than anything else. Wedderburn marched through the entire history of the Massachusetts colony, from 1765 up to the destruction of the tea just weeks earlier. Following his rehashing of the turmoil and tumults of the previous decade, Wedderburn turned to Franklin himself. The attack on Franklin was scathing. For over an hour, Wedderburn, in what has been described as a foul language laced tirade, eviscerated Franklin, who could do little but stand there and take it. Franklin was blamed for everything that had happened, and was referred to as the prime conductor of everything that had thus occurred during the imperial crisis. Wedderburn argued that Franklin should forever be branded with his actions. Private correspondence was sacred, and Franklin had violated that. As a result, he should forever be shamed from society. From here, Wedderburn turns back to the greater fight in the colonies. Specifically, he makes the point of stating that the unrest was not being caused by innocent farmers, but was instead something being conducted by a much smaller group of conspirators, with Franklin at their head. This is an important distinction to look at for a moment. People in the 18th century loved a good conspiracy, and they saw them everywhere. By 1774, what was happening in America was not some mere annoyance. It was a legitimate crisis that continued to grow worse. Wedderburn's arguments here had the effect of attempting to localize that crisis to a much smaller group of people, and not the greater overall population. In other words, men like Franklin, Samuel Adams, James, Otis, and Patrick Henry were the ringleaders, and were the ones who were making all of the noise. Wedderburn argued that this was not some great movement, but rather was still limited in nature. The argument was that this entire attempt to remove Hutchinson from power was an attempt by the radicals in Massachusetts to seize power for themselves. Wedderburn concluded that Franklin, as the mastermind of all of this, was planning to install himself at the head of the Massachusetts government. To what degree Wedderburn believed the things that he was saying is unknown, though it is difficult to see him being able to believe much of the rhetoric. There is certainly no evidence that Franklin was planning to usurp Hutchinson personally. Likewise, we know from things that we have talked about here on this podcast that the crisis was not contained to a small group of conspirators, but was rather a movement that had become systemic throughout colonial society. Sure, different groups had different reasons, but the roots of the unrest were deep. As for Franklin being the primary author of the crisis, that seems even harder to believe. Yeah, Franklin had shared the letters, which understandably drew the ire of the British leadership. However, other than that, Franklin had not even been to the colonies at any point during the imperial crisis. He had been living in London since the 1750s. Even then, Franklin was not a Samuel Adams or a James Otis. Franklin had, in fact, long struck a moderate tone, one that often came to the very considerable annoyance of the more radical factions back across the Atlantic and the colonies. Think back to the Stamp Act for just a moment, an event where Franklin, at every junction, seemed to be a step behind engaging the reactions back in America. There was little Franklin could do drain this other than sit there and endure it. Wedderburn was not interested in hearing what Franklin had to say, nor was Dunning ever going to be able to mount a meaningful defense. That was never the point of the hearing. The point was that the British were anxious to vent their frustrations over the nearly decade-long crisis and aimed them directly at Franklin. Reports from the day say that Franklin sat there and showed nothing in the way of emotion or really any kind of reaction to the dressing down at all. After Wedderburn had finished, Franklin remained silent, not interested in dignifying Wedderburn with a response, nor inviting further attacks from him. Perhaps the least surprising part of the entire hearing came at the conclusion, when the petition to remove Hutchinson and Oliver was emphatically rejected. Another blow would come two days later when Franklin was removed as the postmaster for the colonies. Franklin was incensed about this. While he kept his personal feelings to himself, Franklin focused on the political rebuke, arguing that refusing to hear the colonial grievances made hope of reconciliation between America and the mother country unlikely. Franklin wrote to his son William on February 2nd. In a short letter, he regarded losing his office and remarking that William will likely be hearing shortly about what had happened. Sadly for Franklin, this would open up the very earliest breach in their relationship. William, the governor of New Jersey, would remain a staunch loyalist, even as his father became one of the Patriot leaders. In a letter to Thomas Cushing's from mid-February, Franklin vented about how Wedderburn had been given carte blanche to attack him in his appearance in the cockpit. This marked an important point for Franklin and his own feelings towards the crisis. Franklin had gone from a popular, well-liked figure to a pariah overnight. He was frequently lambasted in the press. Although he made attempts to strike back and defend himself in print, the population in London was not sympathetic. If we are talking about the press in London not being sympathetic, back in the colonies, it was a totally different story. The Boston Gazette published Franklin's account of what had happened. The paper discussed his acquisition of the letters, and made clear that sharing them with Boston was a virtuous act. Franklin had not committed treason in his sharing of the letters. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Through his sharing of the letters, Franklin had exposed a treason being committed by Hutchinson and Oliver. The colonists were further frustrated that Franklin had been removed from the all-important postmaster position. Obviously, the post office was a critical piece of infrastructure in the American colonies, a position that Franklin had significantly improved during his tenure. Having him removed from that position meant that the Postal Service now existed at the whim of a Parliament that could openly interfere with it. There was at least some concern that Parliament might try something truly drastic, like suspending the Postal Service under political motivations. Franklin's ordeal in the cockpit would mark the real beginning of his transformation from being a figure seeking reconciliation to somebody who would become one of the authors of the Declaration of Independence just two and a half years later. Well, that is still just a little bit in our future. We can learn about the frame of mind of the British at the beginning of 1774. The fact that Wedderburn was allowed to launch an all-out assault on Franklin's character with not a single objection shows just how frustrated the British were with their American colonies. The destruction of the East India Company Tea had pushed the crisis to a new level, and as we are going to see next week is going to completely change the game although the undressing of franklin in the cockpit may have provided some cathartic relief to the leadership in london it did absolutely nothing to bring the event to a close where things are going to so profoundly change is going to be in the official british response to this point the duties that had been laid on the american colonies have been put in place to help support the empire in various ways. The battle had morphed, following the Stamp Act, from one of trying to raise needed revenue, to one of Parliament attempting to firmly establish their supremacy over American affairs. This is primarily what we see from the Declaratory Act and its continued enforcement. Although this back and forth had been going on for years now, and certainly frustration was on the rise, To this point, we have not seen the British act out of punitive motivations. The acts thus far have been for raising revenue and establishing supremacy, yes, but they were not being put into place to punish the colonists. That, however, is about to change. The North Ministry, incensed over the destruction of the tea, decided that it was finally time to crush the resistance once and for all and to bring their wayward colonies back into line. Next time, we are going to look at the official response of the British to the Tea Party. In what would become known in the colonies as the Intolerable Acts, Massachusetts is going to see itself punished for the events of December 16th. These acts will strain the relationship even further, as all meaningful hope of reconciliation between the Crown and at least Massachusetts becomes far more unlikely. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy, and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time, as we discuss the Intolerable Acts.